you so much for the opportunity to come here and to study your word. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. And to see the, the snow starting to melt and, and the warmth of the sun today was um, just an encouragement. And uh, whatever season that we find ourselves in spiritually tonight is uh, we're still in winter, but uh, it just reminds us that spring is around the corner. And perhaps there are those that are here uh, listening on live stream or in the sanctuary or in the coffee shop that perhaps uh, there's a, um, a coldness right now uh, spiritually, maybe a barrenness. But Lord, as we read these Psalms, may we be encouraged and uplifted and comforted. And Lord, may your word be um, alive in our hearts, uh, worked out in our lives in a wonderful, very real way. And that's why we're here. We want to know you. We want to um, know how it is to live. And, and Father, we desire to hear from you as we read your word. And so we give this time to you to do just that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 106, you remember that uh, in Psalm 106, the psalmist is kind of recounting the history of the children of Israel from the time that they would come out into the wilderness. And we've been looking at, uh, last week, those stories that are recorded in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, how the children of Israel um, would sin against the Lord and their disobedience. And and the psalmist, he starts out praising the Lord. He starts out uh, the psalm by saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. And that's a theme that we're going to continue to read in the next several uh, Psalms when we move into book five, particularly in Psalm 107 through 118, that we will see that uh, repeated. For his mercy endures forever. And we're going to talk about that, what exactly does that mean, and for you and for me uh, today as, as we move into Psalm 107. But the psalmist, he's talking about and he's rejoicing uh, to the Lord concerning God's faithfulness, even in the time of Israel's sin, that the Lord remembers his covenant uh, with Israel and with his people. So they came out into the wilderness and those stories that we looked at that the psalmist is recounting, we're going to continue to see that. And then there's going to be a a fast forward into uh, what happened during those uh, times where they came into the promised land and they walked in disobedience and gave themselves over to idols. But first, before we get into that, let's continue in verse 28. And they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. So the psalmist here is he continues to write about how they failed, how they sinned before the Lord out in the wilderness. Uh, you read in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, kind of an interesting story. Uh, the, the children of Israel are making their way up to the east side of the Jordan River. And, and the king of Moab sees that and he's concerned about it and, and he is very very frightened, and the the people of Moab are very frightened as well, is what the book of Numbers tells us. 
So what he does is he hires this, this uh, guy named Balaam. You, you've heard of him. You may be familiar with those chapters 22 through 24 where Balaam was a prophet. And Balaam would tell the king of Moab, Balak, that, listen, even though you're offering me this money, I cannot curse the children of Israel. God's hand is on them. God is blessing them. I can't do that. But Balaam would end up going to see Balak, and, and even though he was told not to, and he wanted the money. He, he wanted to, uh, to, to go and, and check it out, and he does. And you hear about Balaam's donkey that spoke and all of that. But what Balaam did is he would give four utterances. And as he would utter over the children of Israel, standing on the hill, looking down on the camp, it would not be curses, but blessings that would come out. And, and matter of fact, as you look at those chapters, you see that it's a very beautiful blessing that Balaam would speak towards the children of Israel. Uh, uh, prophetic implications that we don't have time to go into tonight. But after those uh, four, you know, uh, prophecies and those four uh, blessings that he gave to the children of Israel, Balak, the king of Moab, he's very upset. Hey, I wanted you to curse them, and here you are blessing them. And Balaam says, listen, I told you that I can't curse them. God's not going to let me. We cannot get at them, you know, uh, uh, externally. But here's something that you can do. So you go to Numbers 25. And what Balaam told Balak to do is get the young women of the Midianites, uh, get them all gussied up, uh, have them grab some idols, go and infiltrate the, the camp of the children of Israel, seduce the men so they're committing immorality and, and get them to commit idolatry. And then internally, you can cause there to be a curse because God's going to judge them. And so that's what the king of Moab did. He would get the Midianites women. Apparently, the Moabites and the Midianites had kind of allied together, seeing the children of Israel making their way closer up into that area on the east side of the Jordan River. And so the Midianite women go down there and, and they seduce the men. And there's great immorality. There's idolatry that's going on. And, and the uh, leaders of the children of Israel, Moses and Aaron and the priests, they're in the middle of the camp. And all this is going on. And there's this plague. And 24,000 are dying. And all this is taking place, and they're weeping at the tabernacle. Remember that when they camped, they camped in order. And in the middle of the camp was where the Levites, the priests were. And, and there's Moses and Aaron and, and the other priests, and they're weeping. And all of a sudden, this, this guy from the children of Israel comes with his Midianite girlfriend and, and committing. That's what the chapter indicates to us. And many scholars believe that's exactly what was happening, that right in front of the leadership, there, that they were committing this fornication and, and immorality right in front of them. And Phineas, who was a priest, takes this spear and he thrusts it through both of them. And all of a sudden the plague was stopped. So that's what's being talked about here. How Phineas would take it, it, that, that um, sword and that spear and thrust it through them. And then all of a sudden as the plague stopped and we know that it was then that the Lord told Moses that you're going to do battle against the Midianites. He took the sword and he thrust it through them so the plague would be stopped. But again, 24,000 ended up dying in that plague. You know, it reminds me so much of, of what we see going on in our nation 
And as we gather in this place tonight, don't we weep to see the immorality that's taken place and, and how we're imploding, how we're declining uh, morally, spiritually. And, and there's so many idols that can be around us that, that people give their time to and their, their worship to. Because, see, everybody's going to worship something. It's the old Bob Dylan song that those of us that are old enough, you're going to worship something or someone, right? And it's true because we are designed to worship. And as we look at our nation, we weep, don't we, as we come into this place, into this sanctuary, as we see great immorality that has taken place and, and, and lewdness. There was somebody that called me on Calvary Live yesterday and was asking about that little epistle that's right before the book of Revelation in the New Testament, in the back of your Bible. And in verse 4, it talks about how there were men that were creeping into the church, and they were unholy men, and they were bringing lewdness, and that word lewdness means that um, committing some kind of immorality to where uh, you're flaunting it in front of others. Uh, there's no shame. And we see that today, don't we? That there's a flaunting of immorality to a great degree that, that people have no shame in doing that. They love to flaunt their sin in front of others. Lewdness that takes place. And as we weep about it and as we think about it, the way that we can stop that plague, because it is plaguing our nation, isn't it? And as we're going to be in the book of Colossians, going into chapter 3, it's going to be Paul that says, put away these things. And he's going to talk about fornication and, and uncleanness and those things. Put it away. It's no longer to be a part of your life. But we see that our nation being plagued by those things, as we weep, what is the answer? The answer is, is that we pray as Moses and them were praying there at the tabernacle. They were crying out to the Lord. And then we take the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, right? And we're to give it to others. And I pray that we here at Calvary Chapel, that, that we as Christians, that we would stand firm on the truth of God's word. Because what we're seeing is a compromise in the word of God today uh, in the church. And when I say in the church, I mean the church at large. Uh, those who are considered uh, a part of the body of Christ. But we see that there's an acceptance more of sin, isn't there? And sinful lifestyles and immorality. And, and one of the things that you will hear, here's a phrase that you will hear from those liberal ministers and stuff that will deny, you know, the truth of God's word and, and they will accept and tell us to be tolerable, accepting of sin. And that pressure is being put on us more and more, isn't it? And, and they will tell you that as the word of God is evolving, have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it plenty of times. They say, as the word of God is evolving, and I think the word of God evolving the Word of God isn't evolving. The Word of God is sure. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and the grass will fade and the flowers, you know, will wither away. But the Word of God will never fade away. It endures forever. And you remember that as Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is inspired by God, as God breathes, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that every man be, be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
All scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is God-breathed is what that means, inspired. And you might recall that as we've gone through the book of Psalms, that David himself, that he would say that the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure there in Psalm 19. The statutes of the Lord are right, and the commandments of the Lord is pure. And he states over and over again, as he recognized that the word of God is sure and it's perfect. And it is certain. The word of God is not evolving. And what that is, is a play on words that there are those who say that, you know, the word of God needs to catch up with society. The word of God needs to catch up with what is being, you know, tolerable and, and accepted in society. When the word of God says very clearly that is sin. And if we are going to see this plague being stopped in our nation, then we need to be crying out to the Lord. We need to be weeping as we see this. Sometimes we can become so callous to it. It's all around us, and we become insensitive to it. And we need to be giving the truth of God's word to others that say that this is wrong and God calls it sin and to stand on truth. So that was what was taking place there in the book of Numbers. And oh, by the way, as Moses would go to war against the Midianites, there was Balaam. He, he wanted that money. He wanted the gold and the silver. He wanted the big payday is what he wanted. Well, in Numbers chapter 31, as you see, the, as they went to war against the Midianites, it has a short list of those who were killed, the children of Israel, as they did battle against them. And Balaam is listed. He didn't enjoy it for very long. And what a sad life, a man that I don't fully understand how God would use him. He was a prophet of some sort. He, he would speak prophecy. He could have been used of the Lord, but he wasted it because of greed and covetousness. And he did not get to enjoy it for very long. Listen, the riches of this world, it's only temporary, and it's not going to last very long. So here the psalmist is recounting that, that story. And, and then as uh, we see in, in uh, verse 32, they angered him also at the waters of strife so that it, it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit. So they spoke rashly with his lips. You turn to Numbers chapter 20. What happened there? Well, the children of Israel, it's, it's towards the end of the uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And there are the people murmuring and they're sinning. They're complaining against the Lord. And Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? We're thirsty and, and we need water. And it was the Lord that spoke to Moses and said, Moses, speak to the rock and I'm going to water, you know, they're, uh, bring water forth from the rock once again to water their animals and to give water to them. They're thirsty. And so you know that when they first came into the, to the wilderness, when they needed water, that that rock would provide that water. And of course, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that that rock points to, is a picture of, speaks of Jesus Christ, that he's the rock. He's the one that gives us living waters, doesn't he? And as they were there in the wilderness, it was Moses that was told to take his rod and to strike the rock. 
and he did it. But then after that, he was to simply speak to the rock. And it's a powerful picture of Jesus, how he was struck once and for all for our sins. And as he is, uh, you know, brought provision of forgiveness of sin, he also, as the scripture says, Jesus would cry out there in the area of Galilee on the hillsides and say, to the people that I am the bread of life that comes from heaven. And if you believe in me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. And he's the one, as he would tell the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, that I'm the one that has living water to give to you. You drink of this well, of Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. Remember that story? But if you drink of the water that I have to give, you'll never thirst again. And then in John chapter 7, he would cry out. And on the last day of the feast there in Jerusalem, as uh, they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and he would say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost will flow torrents of living water. Because you see that the Feast of Tabernacles was commemorating how the Lord had brought them through the wilderness and provided bread for them and that water for them to drink. And the priests would make the processions from the temple down to the pool of Siloam about a quarter of a mile away. If you go to Israel with us, we'll go to the pool of Siloam that they just recently excavated where the blind man went in John chapter 9 and he washed and he came up seeing. And they would come back with pots of water and they would pour it on the pavement there and they would be saying those songs of ascent that we'll get into a little bit later on uh, here after Psalm 119 and, and they would commemorate how the Lord had provided water for them in the wilderness wandering the Feast of Tabernacles as it was the fathers that would tell the sons as they would camp out there it's like a week-long camp out trip is what it was they would have their little booths their little tabernacles and the fathers would talk about how God God provided for them in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. So on the last day of the great feast, the priest, when they came back from the pool of Siloam, they didn't have water in the pots. And what it did is it symbolized that when they came into the promised land, that they came in with the land flowing with milk and honey, no longer water coming from the rock. And, and there was this silence, and that's when Jesus would cry out, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. You know, when we're thirsty, physically, we go to the source of water or whatever else that we might drink. Water is the best thing to quench our thirst. And if you're here tonight and in your soul and in your heart, you're thirsty or you're hungry. Know that Jesus is the source to go to. He has living waters to give to you. And so here's Moses, he's there, and he gets upset. And I think about it, and I think, so wonder, you know, here are the people murmuring, complaining, Moses, why did you bring us out here? And so Moses told, take your staff, speak to the rock, and I'm going to bring water to the people. And what did Moses do? He got angry. Instead, he took a staff, and he struck the rock twice, and he yelled at the people, and he said, you rebels, must we fetch water for you? And he struck the rock, and, and all of a sudden the water came. The people were filling up with water and their pots and, and for their animals. They were getting drinks. And while that's happening, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, come here. We need to have a little talk. Moses, why did you do that? Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. 
In Moses, the people were hungry or thirsty, and I wanted to give them water, and you were disobedient. I told you to speak to the rock. You see, he misrepresented God. He misrepresented God in lashing out at them. You rebels. It was before every single time that the children of Israel came and complained against Moses that Moses would cry out to God. This time he was so frustrated he yelled at the people. And that can happen. That can happen to any of us that are dealing with people, that are ministering to people, instead of crying out to the Lord. It would be Moses that would say, Lord, what do I do with these people? They're rebelling. And the Lord said, I'll take care of it. You know, the earth opens up and all kinds of stuff happened. But this time, it was Moses that yelled at them. And I think, I think if it was me after nearly 40 years of putting up with them, I probably would have gone into the crowd with the staff and started swinging it around. <laughs> because it, it can be frustrating. And that's why it's so important that we be ones that are we're just crying out to the Lord. And Lord, in my frustration and dealing, maybe it's with your kids or co-workers or other family members or those in the body of Christ, I don't want to lash out at them. And you see, I know that as the Lord would say that to Moses, you think, well, Moses, man, you know, that was awfully harsh. Moses, the meekest man on, on the earth, and Moses, the, the one who was faithful and bringing them out into the wilderness, that's kind of harsh that they wouldn't go into, uh, he wouldn't go into the promised land. You're not going to go in, Moses. Joshua's going to be the one. But we can talk about theologically how uh, the law doesn't take us into the promised land. It was Joshua that had to do that. But Moses, you misrepresented me. And it tells us of a serious thing that we're not to misrepresent the Lord to others. You know, there are those who will teach and they seem like as they teach that God is just angry at you. And I've talked to those who have grown up in a church towards fire and brimstone. Yes, he tells us to repent. Yes, as we are to trust in him. Yes, there's consequences for sin. But there are those who just always kind of give the message of, you know, God is angry and lashing out and all of this. The other side of the spectrum, there are those uh, who say, well, God is just a God of love. And, well, you know, let's all just, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and all of this. And he, you know, loves you and the way you are. And they forget that God loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so there is representing the Lord where he is good and his mercy endures forever. But he calls us to a life because he does love us to follow after him. And Moses, by the way, the meekest man on the face of the earth, what's this we stuff? Moses was taking the glory away from the Lord. And the Lord said, no, Moses. But you know what? The Lord was very graceful to Moses he didn't go into the promised land. He died on Mount Nebo, which if you ever go to Mount Nebo, and I've been on Mount Nebo on, in Jordan, and you're looking to the promised land, and Moses was able to see supernaturally all the promised land. But the Lord would eventually sneak Moses in. How do I know? The Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Who was up there when Jesus was glowing as the sun? It was Elijah and Moses. <laughs> the Lord snuck them in. And the Lord is so gracious and he's so wonderful. 
So here, as, as Moses struck the rock and, and misrepresented, so he spoke rashly with his lips, verse 33 says. And now we move fast forward to verse 34, as we see that um, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood and thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds and what we read here is as of course the children of Israel would under the um, leadership of Joshua go into the promised land it was a great time of victory and the book of Joshua is a fairly short time. Uh, they would conquer most of the land in seven years, and they would get their allotments, divide up the land, but it was an incomplete conquer. They didn't completely drive out the Canaanite tribes, and they became a, a, a thorn in their side, a sore to their eyes, as the Lord said, don't let them do that. And they would then enter into that generation after Joshua, as you go into the historical books of the Old Testament, the first five books, the book of Moses, right? Then from Joshua to Esther is the historical books. And the book of, um, or from Judges to um, Esther is the historical books. Judges chapter 2, that generation after Joshua, it tells us that they forgot the Lord in the works of the Lord. And they were for 400 years in this cycle of disobedience and, and worshiping the Canaanite gods. And they would find themselves in bondage to the Canaanites, to the Midianites, to the, to the Philistines and others. And God would raise up a judge to free them. So you read those chapters in the book of Judges. We know that the theme of the book of Judges is doing what is right in their own eyes. Sound familiar? There are so many that live by, I'm going to do what I think is right in my own understanding, in my own eyes. And as you read the book of Judges, it goes from bad to worse. It goes from perverse to greater perversity. And that's what happens when a society, when a people, they do what is right in their own eyes. And so finally, then you have the, uh, you know, first and second Samuel comes along and David and his reign and Solomon after Solomon's reign, the nation split into the house of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, the house of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, as well as Jerusalem, the house of Israel. They had 19 kings. And as you recall in our studies of first and second kings, uh, you see that it was a time of great idol worship and disobedience. And they would eventually go off into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Uh, it was just a very difficult time. And, and even though, as it says here, that he would, the enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under his hands, many times he delivered them. And you read those stories that God in his mercy at times in the house of Israel would deliver them from the Syrians at times and bring them, you know, victory, even though uh, they were still in disobedience to the Lord. And same with the house of Judah. The house of Judah did better. They had some very terrible kings like Ahaz and Manasseh. And under the reign of Ahaz and then Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, that they were burning their sons and daughters as they sacrificed to the idols of, of Canaan, to Moloch in the Valley of Gehenna, burning them on the arms of Moloch. 
and all kinds of idolatry and immorality in the high places. Whenever you read about the high places in the Old Testament, the wooden groves, that's where they would go and worship those false idols. And they would, you know, take a, you know, uh, you know, um, they would have the high places and commit immorality and idolatry and all of that. And that's why some of the good kings of Judah, such as Hezekiah and some of the others, that they would take away those places of worship. So there wouldn't be that temptation You've heard me say this before. Get rid of the high places in your life. Get rid of them. Those places of temptation. So here the Lord would work, but they would eventually go off into captivity by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. As we read that the enemies oppressed them, verse 42, many times he delivered them, but they were brought low for their iniquity. In verse 44, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. And he also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. And so as they went off into captivity, the Lord uh, would uh, bring them back from Babylon and he remembered his covenant to them. And then the psalmist ends in verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. And blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. The psalmist returns to God's faithfulness and mercy, and he cries out, bring us back from our captivity. You see, that's what sin does. It will just hold you into captivity and bondage, and that's the message of the scriptures all the way through it. You know, society says, be free. Live as you want to. That's a great deception of the enemy. Do what you want to do. Live any way that you want. Be free. Well, if you live after the world and after sin, you're going to be held in captivity by the world and in bondage, and you're going to be miserable. And maybe there's somebody here tonight or maybe somebody listening on live stream that you're wondering, can I cry out to the Lord? Does he still love me? There is forgiveness that is available as you cry out to him. There is freedom as you repent from your sins, as you turn away from the ways of the world. You see that word repent again. It's, it's not like Moses who, you know, was yelling at the people and God is angry at them. Sometimes there are those who say, well, we're not going to talk about sin and we're not going to talk about repentance. They won't even use those words. Repenting, repentance, to repent. That was the first message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent is a very wonderful word. Because what it means is that you turn direction and you get to turn to the Lord. And anyone whose heart, really, their desire is to turn away from the world and turn to the Lord, he loves you. And maybe the sin and the world has you in captivity and bondage. Cry out to him. He, he desires to set you free because you shall know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. You want to be free? You want to, to be strong? You want to have peace? You want to have joy, that abundant life that the Lord promised for us? Turn to him and cry out to him. And every heart that sincerely cries out to him, he hears. Because he loves you. He loves you. And he wants what's best for you. The world is not your answer. And you will not be fulfilled or satisfied. You're going to be greatly disappointed. You may have temporary satisfaction and fulfillment. 
But here's the thing. Ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in being free comes in a life living for him, for Jesus Christ. Well, that's Psalm 106. Now we go into book five. Uh, finally, book five that will take us to the end of the book of Psalms. Uh, if I were to ask you how many books are there in the Bible, you would say 66. But really, there's 71 as you count these five books of the book of Psalms. And here, Psalm 107 through 150 will be book five. And this psalm here, as we begin book five, the psalmist is giving thanks for bringing them out of the Babylonian captivity. Matter of fact, Psalm 107 to 118, these psalms were written and sung after the captivity of Babylon. You know this in uh, Babylon, there was three waves of captivity, 605 B.C., that they came in, Nebuchadnezzar, as his father died, and he had been doing battle against the Egyptians and defeating them, and as he gets word that your father has died, he's got to quickly secure the throne, and on his way back from Egypt, he stops in Jerusalem, doesn't he? And he takes the choice men, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, off into captivity. And he takes some of the, the utensils and vessels and, and, and those things that were in the temple, Solomon's temple, and, and the treasuries. He takes them away to his pagan temple in Babylon. He secures the throne. He does the same thing in 597 B.C., the second wave of captivity. Ezekiel goes off into captivity. And then finally, after Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonian troops. They surround the city. They break through the walls. They destroy Jerusalem. As, just as Jeremiah said, great death and devastation and destruction happened. And Solomon's temple was destroyed. That's all part of the 70 years of captivity. And then in Daniel chapter 5, you read how it was, you know, the, the Medo-Persian Empire that rose to power and Babylon fell in one night. It was Belshazzar having a party with his uh, governmental officials and a thousand lords. And Cyrus, meantime, was outside, as history tells us. In the flow, the Euphrates rivers went under the wall. He diverted the flow of the river. It was quite an engineering feat of that day. And just as is prophesied in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, Cyrus is even named by name. Cyrus would lead the troops into Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire would rise up. That would be in 538 B.C. In 536 B.C., the decree came out that you guys can go back and, and to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild the temple. And about 50,000 went back under the leadership of who? Zerubbabel, the civil leader. Joshua, the high priest. 50,000 sounds like a lot, but it was a small number when you consider there was over 2 million that had, you know, set up their homes and their businesses all throughout Persia and throughout that area of Iraq. They didn't come back. So a remnant comes back. It's hard. They push the rubble aside. They build the altar uh, to do sacrifices, the, the altar of sacrifice. They build the temple eventually. Uh, there's three waves of returns under Zerubbabel later on, a smaller number under Ezra the priest. And then in 445 B.C., who was it? The third one is a quiz, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king 
of the Medes and the Persians. And it was Nehemiah that was given permission to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and to rebuild the streets. It's all fascinating as you put it all together. And, and that's what this psalm is speaking about during that time after the captivity. And the psalmist begins by saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good and his mercy, it might be translated in your Bibles, his goodness endures forever. And so the psalmist is talking about God's mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. What is it that I deserve? The wages of sin is death. What I deserve is hell. I've done a good job in deserving hell. Whenever I hear somebody, and you and I, we probably, all of us, have heard somebody says, well, I deserve heaven. I deserve heaven. I'm a good person. I, I've been, you know, a good member of the community, a good person, a good husband. Uh, uh, I even give to the church. I've been a member of a church. Uh, none of those things are worthy of heaven. We can't earn heaven. So we need his mercy, mercy not getting what we deserve, and that is hell. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, and grace, as we use that word, grace is getting what I don't deserve. What is it that I don't deserve? Heaven. I don't deserve heaven. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me, oh, his mercy endures forever. And his grace is so wonderful, the unmerited, unearned favor of God. And I pray that as we really think about it and live in that, marveling at the mercy of God and the grace of God, what should that do for you and for me every single day of our lives? <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. We have been redeemed. That word redeemed means to purchase. He's brought us out of captivity. He's brought us out of slavery. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, not with corruptible things, as Peter writes in his epistle, gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the lamb. We have been redeemed. Let the redeemed say so. In other words, don't be afraid to tell people that you're redeemed. The Lord has saved us from the enemy, the world, uh, Satan. We no longer belong to the world. We're free from the power of Satan, as we talked about on Sunday. And we have been redeemed, and we can say so and tell others about that. In verse 3, and gather out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Now, as we go through this psalm, there's going to be four groups of people that are, are going to be spoken about. The first group in verses 4 through 9, uh, we see are those who are walking through life aimlessly. We read in verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that man would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. The first group, those who walk through life, no direction, aimlessly, in the wilderness, barren, they've lost their way. 
But as they cry out to God, he saves us. He leads us to the right way. And aren't you, I know that you are, I know that I am. We are so thankful, we rejoice and glad that we have God's direction and guidance. I can't think what my life would be like if I didn't have the word of God, if I didn't have the spirit of God that speaks to me. If I weren't a Christian, how confusing life would be, how mixed up and messed up that, that my life would be. But we have the Lord. And I hope that Calvary Chapel, that we're understanding verse 5, hungry and thirsty, they found no city to dwell in. Their soul fainted. That's the way it is. When you're walking in life, you don't have the Lord. You're not uh, there uh, being led by the Lord. And then in verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Just as I've already talked about, go to him. Are we understanding, as Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be full. And if you wander in this life just aimlessly, you're going to be hungry and you're going to be thirsty. And your soul's going to just faint within you. He's the one that is truly our satisfaction. I hope the longer that we live and journey with the Lord that we're understanding that. That it comes from Him and knowing Him. And enjoying him. And living every day for him. He's our satisfaction for the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And then the second group of people spoken of in verse 10 through uh, verse 16. We read, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God. And despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. So the second group of people, those who rebel against the word of God. You find yourself, as I've already mentioned, in bondage. God is the one that sets us free. People are in bondage because they rebel against the word of God. People are deceived because they rebel against the word of God. People are cheated, just as we discussed on Sunday, because they rebel against the word of God. And they give themselves to others. And in verse 13, note that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distresses. No one else to save them. No one else to help them. He's the one that saves us. And he's the one that we can cry out to. I like that. And then in verse 17 through 22, is the third group, group of people, fools, <laughs> because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death, and then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. And then, oh, that man would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, and for the wonderful works of the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and declare his works with rejoicing. Verse uh, 22. The third group of people, those who have been afflicted by sin and so thankful for God's forgiveness. And notice in verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. He sent his word 
And the Lord sends his word to us here tonight to bring healing to you. That he loves you and his ways are true. He wants to free you. All these things that we've been talking about to satisfy you, to give you living water, to bring comfort to you, instruction to you. He brings his word and what a privilege it is for us to go through his word. And so thankful for his forgiveness and for his mercy. And then the last group, uh, uh, the fourth group, verse 23 through uh, verse 32, is uh, those who are going through the storms of life. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters. They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And they are at their wits' end. In verse 28, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet, and he guides them to their desired haven. In verse 31, hey, let's read that together. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And then verse 32, let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. The fourth group, those who go through the storms of life, and every single one of us go through the storms of life. And he's the one that brings us out of those storms. He guides us. And I like what it says here in verse 30, that he brought them to their desired haven. It was Jesus that told his disciples after defeating the 5,000, get in the boat and let's go. Let's go on the other side. And the feeding of the 5,000, we know that they were in a storm and they were very much afraid. Uh, those disciples oftentimes would find themselves in storms. When they were on the other side, before that, in Capernaum, it was Jesus that was healing all kinds of sickness and disease and miracles were happening and, and, and things were going on. And, and Jesus said, let's get in a boat and let's go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side. And we know that as they were in that boat, Jesus falls asleep in the boat and a storm comes up and it was a scary storm. Those guys who grew up on the Sea of Galilee, many of them, they were very much terrified by it. And they woke Jesus up and they said, don't you care that we, we perish? And Jesus woke up and he rebuked them and said, you have little faith. And then he cried out, be muzzled. And all of a sudden the wind stopped and the waves were stilled and they marveled. They said, who is this that even the winds, the seas and the waves obey him? And I used to wonder, why, Jesus, did you rebuke them? Because if I was in that boat and I was scared, I would have woke them up too. And the reason, as you look at it very carefully, that I believe, that the Lord said to them, you have little faith. Interesting, he would say, be muzzled. It's the same phraseology that he would use when he would rebuke demons as he cast demons out of people. Be muzzled. Be quiet. It makes you wonder, and scholars wonder, if this storm that was there, those disciples in the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, if it wasn't demonically, you know, powered, that he brought this storm. Kind of interesting. 
would make sense. I mean, there's Jesus and the disciples, God's program right in that boat. If they went and drowned, then it's done and over with, right? Be muzzled. You have little faith. And the reason that I believe that he said that is because before that, when they got into the boat, he said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say we're going to go under the sea. He didn't say we're going to drown in the middle of the sea. He said we're going to go to the other side. And there are times that we go through the storms of life, don't we? That the Lord says, I'm going to take you to the other side. He gives us his promises. He promises that he'll complete that which he's begun in us. That we can stand on those promises and then the storms come and we begin to fret and we begin to wonder and we think it's all going to go down. We're all going to sink. You know, after defeating the 5,000, that storm again. And they're, they're trying, they're learning. They're learning, they're trying, they're contrary against the wind. They're trying to get where the Lord told them to go. And then he came walking out on the water. And that's where Peter, you know, got out and walked on water and all of that. But those storms would teach the disciples something very important. And that is, here was miracles that were happening People getting healed and the feeding of the 5,000. And all of a sudden they would find themselves in a storm. But they needed to trust in the Lord. They needed to learn to trust in the Lord. Because you see, when you go to the book of Acts, Peter stands up, 3,000 are saved. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 4, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, 2,000 more are saved, 5,000 are saved. And what happened right after that? The storm of persecution happened. And you see, the Lord was growing them and getting them to trust in him because he wasn't going to be with them physically, but they needed to know that he was still with them as miracles were happening. People were getting saved, and all of a sudden, the storm of persecution, and they needed to know that the Lord was still working, and he was still with them. Sometimes, I don't understand why storms come into our lives. There are times where we don't understand, but I do know this. That in those times of storms that they come, and they do come, don't they? That the Lord desires to do a marvelous work in our lives and growing us and trusting in Him and maturing us to know that, Lord, Your promises are still true and, Lord, You're still with me and You haven't forgot about me. And, Lord, that you're going to see me through somehow, some way. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That they stagger like a drunken man. They're at their wit's end, but they cry out to the Lord in their troubles. And he brings them to their distresses and he calms the storm. And maybe you're in some sort of storm here tonight. And the Lord's not doing and allowing that storm in your life just to do you in, but to build you up and to grow you. And know that as you cry out to him, as you trust in him. I talked to, to an old friend in another part of the state that's really going through some difficulty uh, in their lives. And they were telling me that one of the things as I'm going through this, it's really causing me to trust in the Lord and to look to him. And to really grow in him. And it's strengthening me. It's kind of like when we go up to Rocky Mountain National Park and we see those bristlecone pines up near Timberline and they're all gnarly. And, and, but there's a thing of beauty, isn't there? 
and artists come and they take pictures of them and they draw them and they, they sell them in their shops because it is beautiful. But the reason they're shaped that way is because the winds that come blowing, you know, down from the mountaintops and the winters and they got a deep root system and they're able to stand up. But, but yet you see the beauty that comes from it because of the adversity of the winds and the storms that come over those mountains. And I tell you that as you go through storms and trust in the Lord and look to him, get your root system deep in the word of God, the word of God rooted in your heart and you cry out to him and he's going to make a thing of beauty out of you. He's going to make a thing of beauty out of you. And you're going to be able to minister to others as you grow in him, as you mature. And they're going to say, there's something about you that is different. And you get to minister to them because you've been through a storm or two. And you've seen the faithfulness of the Lord. And that's what the psalmist is talking about in this psalm. You in a storm tonight? Cry out to him and look to him and trust in him because he's going to get you to the other side. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. And, oh, I thank you so much that we can be encouraged by these psalms. And, Lord, that we know that what the world has to offer us is deception and bondage and barrenness. And the psalmist goes on to write about, you're the one that makes the streams in the wilderness. And if there's anyone here tonight that feels barren... Sin will cause that. Just maybe difficulties of life. But Lord, you're the one that fulfills us and satisfies us. And you're the one that we can cry out to. We can cry out to you for salvation. And I do pray, if anyone who's listening on live stream, listening to this on the radio later, that you're here tonight in this place and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you so much and he desires to extend his mercy and grace to you to forgive you of your sins as you cry out to him, as you repent and turn to him. Quit going the direction you're going. The world is not your hope or your salvation. Jesus is. And he went to that cross because he loves you. He cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. He was put into a grave and he rose again, validating what he did, proving that he is the son of God who conquers sin and death. The tomb's empty. You cry out to a living Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Cry out to him for forgiveness for the hope of eternal life and access in relationship with the Father that comes only through Him. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Come in faith. And as you do, you cry out in your heart, I come to you right now, Jesus, and I give you my life. I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior because I believe you died for my sins. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. I believe that you rose again in your life speaking to me. And I now surrender my life to you. 
And I thank you for loving me. And thank you for dying for me. And for saving me. And help me to walk in your ways and to know you more. And I thank you for this new beginning. And making me a new person. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer tonight, will you come up and talk with me as we close the service? Tell me the decision that you made. But I also want to pray for anyone that is here or listening. Maybe there's a barrenness, a dryness that's in your life. Maybe you feel captive to whatever's going on. Maybe it's the circumstances you're in. Maybe it's because you've been ignoring the Word of God. Maybe it's because of sin. I don't know what it is, but... You come to the Lord, you cry out to Him. And that's what the psalmist does. We've seen that repeated over. They cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in a storm. For whatever reason it might be, cry out to the Lord right now. Just take a minute. He hears you and He loves you. He hears every heart that truly turns to Him. To bring instruction to you. To free you from captivity to free you from the world, to strengthen you, bring comfort to you, give assurance to you and rest to you. Father, I thank you that we can come here tonight in the few minutes that we have just to do this. Lord, I thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us and your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. I pray that you bless everyone here as we go our way. We will continue on with you, walking with you every day looking to you to be fulfilled and satisfied as we come and drink of the living waters, to be filled continually, to stay close to you, fellowship with you, and trust in you in everything. I pray you take everyone home safely tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness for his wonderful works to the children of men. He loves you. Would you please stand? We're going to close in song if you need prayer. Love to pray with you for any prayer needs that you have. The Lord bless you as you go your way. Have a good night's rest tonight. As you end the day, may you truly rest in the Lord and look to him. Travis. Travis.